coming to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio, this is Long Story Short. I'm Sean Witt, the Audience Development Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide non-for-profit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Reporter Whitney Bryan covers vulnerable populations, and she's here to talk about the Tulsa Police Department investigation into officers who heckled and tackled a grandmother while she was experiencing a bipolar episode. Whitney, this case dates back a couple of years, right? Uh, can you remind us what happened? Yeah, so there was a woman named LaDonna Paris. She was 70 years old at the time. This was back in 2021. And she had a bipolar episode, as you mentioned. She was manic and erratic and hallucinating and experiencing a lot of scary things. And so she ended up locking herself in a bathroom at a furniture store in Tulsa. And that furniture store called police and, and police arrived and they were outside of the bathroom door um, trying to coax her to come out of the bathroom. But in the meantime, while that was happening, officers were heckling her, making fun of her, calling her 85, which is a police code for someone in mental health crisis. They were calling her things like cuckoo bird. They were laughing and jiggling the door handle and shaking the door while she was screaming in the bathroom. Uh, at one point, Officer Ronnie Karosha, she fired her taser outside the door and threatened to tase Paris, who was still locked inside. At the end of all of this, the officers ended up kicking the door in, tackling Paris to the ground, and then taking her to jail. The Tulsa Police Department conducted an investigation into those officers. What what did they find? That's right. Well, they're not telling us what they found. The police chief, uh, Wendell Franklin, he receives the results of these investigations, and he's the one who ultimately determines what happens if any disciplinary action is taken and what kind. He has not responded to any of my questions or requests for information. A department spokesman did get back to me last week, and they told me that they have completed the investigation and that they would not be sharing any of the results and they would not be telling anyone uh, in the public whether any disciplinary action was taken against any of these officers. Is there any other information that's they're obliged to, to give the public or an invest, in an investigation like this? There is. So there was one way for us to push back. So the state law that protects public information considers a couple forms of disciplinary action as public record. So basically, if an officer has lost pay, was demoted, suspended or fired, then the department is required to release that information to the public. So I specifically asked that question of the department, and they told me that those did not happen to any of the officers involved in this case. So in other words, the officers who responded to LaDonna Paris, none of them lost any pay, were demoted, suspended, or fired for this. Uh, you and Oklahoma Watch are suing the Tulsa Police Department, right, uh, over the violations of the Open Record Act. Is that related to the investigation? 
Well, kind of. Um, so last year we filed a lawsuit against the department because they denied my request for LaDonna Paris's arrest report. So that's a pretty common public record. Most departments know um, that that's a public record. But I was told by the Tulsa Police Department last year that they were not going to release that record because they were investigating their officers. However, the law does state that that is not a reason to withhold public information. So they have they have supplied other records related to this case, things like video footage, for instance. But I have still not received the arrest report for this case. What prompted the police department to investigate this in the first place? Well, um, the big sort of push was video footage being released. So uh, LaDonna Paris's son requested the body camera footage of the incident from the police department. Again, that's a public record. So they had to give that to uh, her son. And once he received it, he was um, pretty appalled by what he saw. And so he took the footage and basically edited kind of a shorter version, like a 10 minute um, video together of what he considered kind of the most heinous pieces um, of that footage. And he posted that online. Police responded to that by saying that, you know, hey, our officers didn't violate any policies here, uh, but the public was pretty outraged by the video that they saw. So the push back from the public um, resulted in the police department launching an investigation. So the police won't say whether anyone was ever held accountable for what happened to LaDonna Paris, but have you heard anything else from any of the other city officials? Right. So I did reach out to the mayor's office. Uh, the mayor is refusing requests for an interview, has not been willing to talk about this case at any point so far. Um, his spokesperson told me that the reason he will not speak about this case in any way is because LaDonna Paris is suing the city and the officers claiming civil rights violations. And that uh, lawsuit is ongoing. We also spoke to a city councilwoman, Vanessa Hall Harper. She was disappointed, even angry at the department's lack of transparency, but she said she wasn't surprised. Uh, last spring after that video came out, there was a city council discussion about maybe creating a citizens oversight committee or launching a new office to monitor police investigations like this one. But Hall Harper was one of only two counselors who actually voted for that motion. Um, so it failed and none of those things have come to fruition. And I think it, you know, it's important to mention here as well that while we've talked a lot about open records law and what the state requires the department to do, the department also has its own policy book, uh, policy manual. We've looked through that manual and what we found there was that the department actually has a policy that says they will treat these investigations as public information. So the department's manual says they will release this information to the public. So we've asked why they're violating their own policies and guidelines and have not heard back from them on that. Wow. And interesting. Well, thanks, Whitney. You can read all of Whitney's coverage of this Tulsa case, as well as her other work on Oklahoma's most vulnerable people on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Reporter Paul Bunnies has been covering the fallout from a law banning the state from doing business with banks and financial firms that boycott oil and gas companies. Paul, give us some background on this law. 
Yeah. So last year, Oklahoma lawmakers passed a, a bill that basically uh, forbids the state from contracting uh, or uh, doing financial business with uh, firms that they say boycott the oil and gas industry. Uh, and this, um, you know, kind of has, has caused some issues as it's been implemented by the treasurer's office uh, one year later. Uh, Oklahoma was modeled from the one from Texas, right? That's right. Yeah, this is kind of a trend among some states. There's kind of copycat legislation going around. Texas put its law in uh, the year before in 2021 um, and then put into effect last year and had some issues with that, too. Um, And so basically Oklahoma copied the Texas model. uh, And in fact, uh, the questionnaires that went out to financial firms earlier this year were almost word for word the same as the Texas questionnaires that went out the year before. So the Oklahoma state treasurer has a role applying to this law, correct? That's right. Yeah. Basically, the treasurer has to ask all these financial firms uh, because it does business with a lot of financial firms and money management and other types of things. And the treasurer sits on several pension boards. There's five or six state pensions uh, systems across the state uh, that serve various types of public employees. And so the treasurer has a role on those boards, but also his main role in this law was basically asking these financial firms to provide bond underwriting and uh, investment advice for pension funds and other state entities uh, to kind of certify that they do not boycott oil and gas companies. Um, How many of these companies were put on the first version of this list? So the state treasurer released this list uh, early May, and there was uh, about there was 13 firms, including some of the nation's largest banks, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and one of the largest investment managers, BlackRock Investment, which has come under fire lately by some conservative politicians for its kind of uh, net zero and carbon uh, reduction kind of policies. I'm guessing these companies can protest their protest their inclusion on this list. What's what's next in the process? That's right. Yeah. So the companies are, are right now at the process where they are basically telling uh, the state treasurer that they do not boycott oil and gas. Uh, and they're then uh, basically asked, uh, you know, to sign the contracts that they have with state entities uh, certifying that. And so there's a process now that these, these companies are going through. Uh, but it's also had some fallout already. Uh, in fact, one local municipality in Stillwater has had a bond issuance. They were going to get ready to go. Uh, they had to, to kind of postpone it because one of the big uh, companies, Bank of America, was one of the bond underwriters. So it's causing some some problems at the lower local level as well. I know you recently attended a meeting of the state's largest pension fund. Can you kind of give us a recap of what that was? Yeah. So there was a special meeting um, last week of the Oklahoma Public Employees Retirement System. Um, and that is a, a system that has probably about $11 billion in assets for retirees of the state. Um, and basically, they were hearing a presentation by their financial folks telling them um, they have uh, almost 60% of their investments, uh, more than uh, $600 million invested with BlackRock, which is one of the blacklisted companies. And so they heard a presentation from their financial folks basically saying, if we have to divest from this, which means sell off all their assets, how much it would cost to uh, provide a new new manager, uh, what the opportunity cost might be for selling that stuff in the market at that time. And so they basically came up with a, a number, an estimate about almost $10 million that it would cost that pension system to divest from BlackRock. And of course, that caused some eyebrows raising at the meeting. Um, now, the state treasurer sits on that board, was at the meeting as well. Uh, he pushed back on some of the estimates there, saying they were not um, directly related to some of the stuff they were talking about in the divestment and saying that the, the state hasn't rebalanced its portfolio, which means basically taking out a investments in different types for a number of years that didn't know how much it might cost to divest from BlackRock. Uh, And after the meeting, he talked to reporters and said he was still committed to that list, but he will be reviewing some of those firms on there and some of them may come off in the next review period. What are the other states doing about these types of laws targeting management decisions of large publicly traded banks and financial firms? 
Yeah, so this seems to be quite a trend, especially among uh, conservative states. There seems to be kind of this trend of copycat legislation going around. Uh, we've had recent stuff, uh, in fact, just this last pa- legislative session in Kansas, they had a, a similar bill go through their legislature. It got weakened at the end. Uh, they just wrapped up their session just like Oklahoma did. And so they have a version of that law in Kansas now, but it's a little bit le- weaker than uh, what the Oklahoma law is and, and seems to be more of kind of a messaging bill and a political messaging bill than actual thing that might have a problem with their pension systems. Thanks, Paul. You can read all of Paul's coverage from the banking blacklist as well as his state government coverage at oklahomawatch.org. Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch. She's here to talk about a huge decision by the state's virtual charter board to, for the first time ever, authorize a religious school. Jennifer, we've talked about the school proposal before, but could you remind us what it's all about? Sure. This is a charter school proposal by the Archdiocese of Oklahoma City and the Diocese of Tulsa. It's a joint application to open a virtual school in the fall of 2024 is what they're looking at. And it would be open to any student in the state. Um, and they would, would teach um, not only, you know, um, subjects, math, science, English, those things, but also they would continue to teach um, religion and Catholic principles as part of their school. How did the vote by the statewide virtual charter school go down? Uh, it was pretty interesting. This was a vote. It was um it's a five-member board, so a, a very small board requires uh, three yes votes f- to approve anything. Um, they've had a lot of turnover on this board, um, and we're actually, we reported um, earlier this year, we're down to two members where they can't even do business. Um, they've gotten a lot of new members, mostly for this decision. Um, this has been the main business that they've had this year, and they were able to secure three yes votes in order to get the school approved. What makes this vote such a big deal? So people are watching Oklahoma. Um, I have talked to several uh, researchers and education, um, you know, wonks who are just really watching this decision in Oklahoma because of the broader implications it has um, for allowing public funds to flow to um, churches and religious entities who operate schools. Uh, This is something that's never been done before. I mean, this is the very first application for religious public school to be approved in any state in the country. I'm sure that there was a lot of factors that had to go into making this. What did the what did the board members have to consider? I mean, the main thing they were considering is the potential for litigation. They've been told um, by several different entities that the board would be sued um, if they approved the school. They would be sued if they denied the school. Um, so they were all very much expecting lawsuits to come down. They um, talked a lot about this in the public meeting. They received legal advice from the attorney general's office. So that was a huge consideration. Of course, they also talked about the quality of the application. Um, It had been uh, unanimously declined to sponsor the school earlier this year because they had some deficiencies based on how they would handle special education students and, um, you know, other things like that. And um, some board members still found some of those deficiencies this week, but um, it was able to um, pass muster among some of the members anyway. Were you expecting the vote to be close? And did anything surprise you coming out of that? 
I did expect the vote to be close, yes. And I think most other folks did as well. The biggest surprise was a kind of last-minute switcheroo on the board. Um, There were two longstanding members, the chair, Robert Franklin, and a former Lawton superintendent, Barry Beauchamp. And they had been the only ones who had been on that board through, um, you know, this whole restructuring of epic charter schools and, um, you know, some of the other work that this board has really had to slog through over the last several years to try to strengthen oversight of these schools. And um, late last week, just days before the decision and after the meeting had been posted, the um, speaker of the House replaced one of those longstanding members with a former state board of education member. Um, And he came to the meeting Monday and voted, even though the chair asked him not to, asked him to abstain because, you know, he was just dropped on this board at the last minute. And he was one of the yes votes needed. Hmm, Wow. Um, Did the the board's legal counsel give them any sort of guidance or advice? Yes. I mean, there were these, um, you know, competing AG opinions. We had John O'Connor who had previously said, yes, they should, you know, feel free to approve this school if it's high quality. Um, And then Gettner Drummond came into office, withdrew that opinion, um, made his own opinion that basically said, no, this violates the state constitution, state law, the charter school law, which very clearly says schools, public schools have to be non-sectarian. So they cannot be controlled by any religious sect, which this one clearly is. Um, So there, I mean, there was very clear indications that these folks would be violating the state constitution and state and federal law by approving this school. Wow. So the longstanding separation of church and state appears to be in jeopardy. I mean, that is definitely what we're concerned about, you know, and a lot of folks have have brought that up. This is um, this is a sea change. It is a very big deal. Yeah. Uh, what happens next? Um, so, I, I mean, I expect those lawsuits to be filed. It very well could delay the opening of the school. You've also got this, um, you know, brand new bill that was just signed by the governor uh, yesterday, I believe, that will dissolve this board. So they're going away. They're going to start a, a, re, a reconstituted board that would oversee both virtual and brick and mortar charter schools going forward. Hmm. Thanks, Jennifer. You can read all of Jennifer's education coverage on our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, be sure to sign up for her free weekly email newsletters, Education Watch. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch, which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This podcast was made possible by a grant from the Kirkpatrick Foundation, for which we are grateful. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Sean Witt. Thanks for listening.